You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 114, Escape from Fort Lee. Last week, the Continental Army suffered what would be its worst loss in the first five years of the war. The British took the last 3,000 Continentals on Manhattan Island when they captured Fort Washington. In terms of American losses, this was by far the greatest American defeat up to this point in the war. General George Washington took responsibility for the loss, but said his failure was that he relied too heavily on the advice of his more junior officers, not mentioning in his report to Congress that he was on the site three days before the attack began. Other officers smelled blood in the water. General Charles Lee, now second-in-command in the Continental Army, after Artemis Ward resigned earlier in the year, attacked Washington and his leadership. In a letter to Benjamin Rush, a Pennsylvania delegate to the Continental Congress, Lee said that he had predicted the fall of Fort Washington and that he had left General Washington saying, draw off the garrison or they will be lost. There is, however, no evidence that Lee ever said that to Washington. In fact, everything I've read about Lee in the days and weeks before the fall of Fort Washington said that he strongly supported reinforcing and defending the fort. Lee seemed to think, probably correctly, that as Washington fell out of favor, he might be tapped to become the new commander of the Continental Army. Lee continued in his letter to Rush that he could probably save the day if Congress would give him dictatorial powers for just one week. Then he bemoaned that this would probably never happen. That final thought was correct. Congress may have lost some faith in General Washington, but it certainly did not want a would-be dictator in command of the army. Congress feared losing control of its own army almost as much as it feared losing to the British regulars. Whatever the fallout was going to be over the loss, there was no time for recriminations in the days that followed. The Continentals may have hoped that the British would not begin an invasion of New Jersey so late in the fighting season, but that was not to be. General Howe was uncharacteristically fast in following up his victory at Fort Washington with an assault on Fort Lee on the other side of the river in New Jersey. On the evening of November 19th, only three days after Fort Washington fell, a contingent of about 5,000 British and Hessians crossed the Hudson River at night. Howe gave the field command of the British and Hessian forces in New Jersey to General Charles Cornwallis, also known as Lord Cornwallis. I've mentioned Cornwallis a few times now. 
he may be the best-known British general in the American Revolution, even though he never rose to commander of North America. His fame in the Revolution comes primarily from his surrender at Yorktown, which effectively ended the war. Sorry if that's a spoiler, but that's still years away. I first mentioned Cornwallis back in episode 82, when he came over from Ireland with reinforcements. His first mission was as General Henry Clinton's second-in-command. He participated in the failed attempt to capture Sullivan's Island in the harbor at Charleston, South Carolina. I somehow neglected to give him a background, despite his active leadership in the British invasions of Long Island and Manhattan. But since this is Cornwallis's first independent command, it's a good as time as any for a little background. Charles Cornwallis was born in London in 1738 to an aristocratic family. His father was an earl. Like many aristocratic families whose heads served in the House of Lords, his family also controlled a seat in the House of Commons. The Cornwallis family had controlled the seat for over 300 years. Charles attended Eton College before buying a commission as an ensign in 1757, just after the Seven Years' War began. Despite the war, 19-year-old Cornwallis continued his military studies on the continent under British officers and at the Military Academy in Turin, in what is today Italy. He did finally see action at the Battle of Minden in 1759. Shortly after that, he purchased a captaincy and received a brevet to lieutenant colonel. He led a regiment in several more European battles in the remaining part of the Seven Years' War. While he was away fighting the war in Europe, Charles's father saw to it that he got elected to the family seat in the House of Commons in 1761. When his father died the following year, Charles inherited the title as Earl and moved from the House of Commons to the House of Lords. Cornwallis's politics were very pro-colonist. He allied himself with the more radical Whigs and voted accordingly. He was one of only five lords to vote against the Stamp Act in 1765. He was a close ally of Lord Rockingham, who was probably the most pro-colonial prime minister of the era. Despite his opposition to royal policies in Parliament, Cornwallis remained in the king's good graces. He received a number of political appointments, including the Privy Council in 1770 and as Constable of the Tower of London in 1771. Part of this may be explained by the fact that, although Cornwallis voted with the Radicals, he did not give long and contentious speeches against the policies that the king favored. In addition to politics, Cornwallis remained active in the military. He received a commission as Major General in late 1775, just before shipping out to America. Cornwallis's inherited wealth and position meant that he could have lived a comfortable life without having to serve in the army, but he continued to do so out of a sense of duty. He was also known as a commander who did not mind mixing with enlisted men and getting them motivated. Many general officers at the time kept a strict distance from enlisted men. Cornwallis was also known as a commander who did not terribly rely on brutal lashings to maintain discipline. Of course, he used punishments at times, 
but found that appealing to a unit's sense of honor and pride often led to better results. In this, he was very forward-thinking and commanded some of the most highly disciplined and effective regiments in the army. Cornwallis took his duty as an officer seriously. Although in the House of Lords, Cornwallis had aligned politically with the colonists, when war broke out, he was determined that he would do his duty and crush the rebellion. He volunteered to serve under Clinton in South Carolina and continued in that service in the multiple battles to capture New York. Despite serving under Clinton, Cornwallis was not averse to passing along information to General Howe about how upset General Clinton was with General Howe's leadership. This, along with his fighting ability, meant that General Howe was ready to trust him with the independent command in New Jersey. Cornwallis would pursue Washington with an aggressiveness that Washington had not yet experienced. General Washington had to fight a rearguard action to keep the British in check long enough to keep his men on the move toward Philadelphia. As Howe wanted, Cornwallis doggedly pushed the Continentals back, but never attempted to encircle or capture the enemy army. Cornwallis's first order of business, of course, was to capture Fort Lee. Along the New Jersey side of the Hudson River, the Continentals had posted guards by the river to prevent any sort of uncontested landing. But they left gaps in their lines. One of them was at the cliffs, just a few miles north of Fort Lee, called Lower Closter Landing. The Americans thought that it would be an impossible landing point for the enemy, given the sheer cliffs. But with the assistance of three New Jersey Tories, the British learned of a trail that led up the cliffs that the army could use. It was only about four feet wide, over wet, slippery, and sometimes pretty steep rocks, but the army could ascend there without alerting the enemy. One Hessian soldier who participated in the landing noted that a few men armed only with rocks could have stopped the entire advance on that trail. But there were no guards at all. The landing force climbed up to the top of the cliff, about 440 feet above the river, and assembled their lines of battle before dawn, completely undiscovered. By the morning of November 20th, the engineers had built lifts out of wood and rope that allowed them to pull up several small artillery field pieces to accompany the infantry. Even without confronting any enemy, the pace was slow. The soldiers struggled to get the men, cannon, and other equipment up the treacherous cliffs during a heavy rain that fell through the night and morning. After the British had established a perimeter and began sending out scouting parties, the locals discovered their presence in New Jersey. General Washington received an alert to the presence on the New Jersey side of the river sometime that morning. This time, there was no indecision about what to do. Fort Lee was not built to defend against a large assault by land. The fort walls were simply dirt embankments surrounding a small area about 250 square feet. It had never been designed to withstand an assault or siege of any size. The fort was built to provide support for the cannon along the Hudson River and little else. Washington immediately sent notice to evacuate the 2,000-man garrison in and around Fort Lee. Most of the garrison still there were local militia. 
Fort Lee was, as I said, even less defensible and smaller than Fort Washington. But General Washington could not afford to have another huge chunk of his army taken prisoner. Before receiving word of the crossing, American forces did not seem to be on very high alert. General Nathaniel Green was sleeping in that morning when an express rider rode into the fort to alert him of the imminent attack. Green had been spending the past few days trying to remove munitions and provisions just in case the British did attack. After losing so much at Fort Washington, the Continentals could ill afford to risk the loss of more munitions and supplies. Unfortunately, the lack of horses and wagons made the attempt to remove the supplies in a timely fashion impossible. By the time word reached the fort, the British were almost on top of them. Cornwallis had assembled his force of 5,000 British and Hessian soldiers into two columns by about 1 p.m. He ordered his army ahead at the quick time on the six-mile march to Fort Lee. The scene at the fort was one of chaos. Some men chose to ignore the news and continue eating breakfast. Others dropped everything and fled into the woods. Still others thought this was a good time to break into the fort's stores and begin looting, particularly the rum. General Green managed to get most of the garrison into two columns and marched toward where Washington was waiting for them a few miles from the fort. After getting the bulk of the garrison to Washington, Green returned to the fort to gather more stragglers. In getting the men away, the Continentals abandoned the massive stockpile of guns, ammunition, tents, and food still stored at the fort. There just wasn't any time to pack up any wagons, even if they had wagons. The British arrived to find the fort almost empty. They did capture about a hundred stragglers. Most were not in the fort itself, but were hiding in the forest nearby. Some had passed out from drunkenness after breaking into the stores of rum left behind. None of the remaining defenders fired a shot. The attackers still found food cooking on the fires, as some defenders did not flee until they actually saw the British approaching the fort. The Hessians saw a dust cloud of the retreating army a few miles away toward Hackensack. They started to pursue and harass the retreating column, but General Cornwallis ordered them back. They were under orders to take the fort, not pursue the enemy any further. The 2,000-man garrison from Fort Lee, joined by another 2,000 men who had been in the field under Washington, all retreated together back to Hackensack, where they collapsed for the night. Washington posted sentries along the Hackensack River, but, as I said, the British did not pursue them. The fall of Fort Lee meant another embarrassing loss for Washington. He had not lost a large number of men. However, his failure to secure a timely evacuation of arms and supplies meant another loss of items that the army desperately needed, not only for battle, but just to keep an army in the field. The British reported capturing cannon, munitions, tons of forage, flour, and biscuits. And not satisfied with that windfall, the British and Hessians raided nearby estates, looting more items and capturing over a thousand head of cattle. Washington watched the remnants of his army stagger into camp after dark under a light rain. His soldiers had to endure cold November nights without winter uniforms, blankets, tents, or even much food. 
many militia simply gave up and went home. Most figured the end was near. Although 2,000 from Fort Lee had met up with Washington's contingent of about 2,000 in Hackensack, Washington reported a few days later that his force was at most 3,000 men, meaning the rest had deserted. By the next morning, November 21st, the first British and Hessian forces approached Hackensack. They were met with return fire from the Continental Lines. The British had expected or at least hoped that the Americans would simply continue to run as they approach. But the Americans held the line at the Hackensack River. Rather than press an attack, Cornwallis opted to wait and bring up reinforcements. He paused for a few days, awaiting additional units that would give him a total of over 10,000 soldiers to pursue the Americans. While he waited, the Americans gave up the town and retreated further south in good order. The Continentals pulled back to the Passaic River. There they put up another defensive line. Washington could not stand against the superior British force against him, but he could force them to fight for every piece of ground they took. The Continentals crossed the Passaic River over the Aquakanock Bridge. Once across, they destroyed the bridge in hopes of slowing down their pursuers. In British-occupied Hackensack, the locals initially greeted the British and Hessians as liberators. But the Hessians especially began looting the town. General Cornwallis focused on building up stocks of food for his army, and this quickly put a stop to the political goal of getting the locals to support the king. Even without this behavior, as the British moved further south and away from New York, they found the locals increasingly hostile. Now, as I said, General Howe was fairly content. He had full control of Manhattan. The capture of Forts Washington and now Lee gave him a few more victories to report back to London. Cornwallis was slowly but steadily pushing the enemy out of New Jersey, thus liberating another colony for the king. As the Howe brothers began thinking about settling into winter quarters, they felt that they had accomplished most of what they had wanted to do. They had proven the Americans could not stand up to the British army, which seemed to be able to move about at will. The winter would give the Americans time to think about their predicament and would probably be ready to sue for peace before another campaign would begin in the spring. Cornwallis, however, in his first independent command, was not quite ready to shut down for the winter. After a few days of collecting stragglers and supplies around Fort Lee, Cornwallis assembled his column and marched out in pursuit of the fleeing Continental Army. It was late November, and a cold driving rain fell on both the fleeing Continentals and their pursuers. Muddy roads made the movement of wagons and equipment difficult. It was more of a problem for the British since the Continentals had already abandoned most of their equipment. The Continentals also destroyed all bridges as they marched down the west bank of the Passaic River, so the regulars shadowed them a few days behind along the east bank. As the British moved south, they encouraged locals to take advantage of Howe's offer of amnesty. Many did so, probably in order to protect their property. Most patriots had already fled ahead of the British arrival. While there was some clear hostility, or at least a coldness, to the British arrival at some farms and villages, most locals who remained appeared to side with the British 
as they marched through towns along the east coast of New Jersey. Now, as I said, this was critical to British war plans. The British would never have enough regulars or even Hessian auxiliaries to occupy all of America. They had to rely on local Tories to keep areas under the king's authority once the army had settled them and moved on to another area. Cornwallis did make an effort to limit looting and pillaging of the locals. Soldiers were always eager to supplement their lives through pilfering food or other valuables. Even the army itself had to commandeer supplies, though, along the way to feed and shelter the men. So Cornwallis had to struggle to keep the plunder of potentially friendly locals from getting too far out of control, or those locals would not remain friendly. In many of the British reports, uh, British officers tend to blame the Hessians for all of the looting. But given the large number of regulars who were subjected to lashings or other punishments, it seems clear that many British soldiers could not resist either. Beyond the soldiers, many civilians, former slaves or camp followers that marched behind the army, also looted and pillaged whatever they could find. Of course, Washington's army was guilty of many of the same crimes. Starving Continentals and militia, many without food, shoes, or blankets, availed themselves of opportunities to acquire whatever they needed, however they could. Being on the run, Washington had a hard time attracting any new recruits to what looked like a lost cause. He was lucky to hold on to the soldiers he already had. The Continental Army reached Newark, where it remained for a few days. There, Washington hoped that the local militia would rally around the army and give him enough men to make a stand. His men marched into Newark on November 23rd or 24th and remained there until November 28th. It was from there that he sent a note to Congress in Philadelphia warning them that the British might pursue the army that far and take the city before the end of the year. Some in Congress, not realizing the state of affairs, were shocked and panicked at the idea that the British might soon get to Philadelphia. On November 28th, Cornwallis's British force entered Newark just as the last of the Continentals retreated south out of the other end of town. As Cornwallis's regulars moved south, Washington's Continentals once again retreated further south to New Brunswick. Washington had failed to rally any militia at Newark, and the Continentals were in no position to engage in a sustained battle. Both armies continued to move across New Jersey toward Philadelphia. Next week, we're going to look at the Continental Congress and what they thought about recent events, as well as diplomatic efforts. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, 
or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Last week, I attended a reading for a new show called The Crossing and the Ten Crucial Days, the musical. I was invited by Roger Williams, who runs 10crucialdays.org. His website focuses on Washington's crossing of the Delaware and the ten days of fighting and marching that followed. He's executive producer of this show, which is a live musical of that very topic. It's one of his many attempts to bring the revolution, and especially the ten days surrounding Washington's crossing, to better public appreciation. Roger also supports this podcast on Patreon as a Privy Council member. Now, I'll admit at the outset, I do not regularly attend musical theater. I tend to be much more at home curled up with an obscure book about 18th century history. But I have to say, I really enjoyed myself. It stayed faithful to the true story while developing some interesting characters and had some good music. If you want to learn more about the show, as it's still attempting to make its first public premiere, go to thecrossymusical.com for more information. Maybe you can get tickets before they become as expensive and impossible to get as Hamilton tickets. So, this week on the show, we had Washington, who had recently been forced out of New York City, now running for his life across New Jersey, unable to mount any serious defense. For those of us looking back on these events in hindsight, it's easy to think of these difficult weeks as just a minor setback on the eventual road to an American victory. For those living through these events, it's easy to see how they thought this could mean the end of the American rebellion. The British army seemed invincible and was marching toward the seat of Congress in Philadelphia. I can understand why many soldiers just wanted to go home. No one wanted to be captured in a losing cause and become a prisoner of war. The Howe brothers were making generous pardons for anyone who agreed to pledge allegiance to the king. So why not take that offer while it was still on the table? Even Washington himself might have negotiated a surrender that protected not only his life, but his estate as well. In all of his actions and writings at the time, Washington seems concerned that the game is pretty well up. Despite the many horrible things that might have happened had he lost the war, he never really seems to consider any sort of negotiated peace. I'm pretty sure that if it came down to it, Washington would have charged at a British cannon with the last company of soldiers who would follow him before he considered defeat. I think there's pretty good evidence that Washington thought he would die in battle and preferred that to any sort of surrender. That is a big part of what makes him the indispensable man to the revolution. This, of course, is all history to us, as we know what is coming soon, Washington's famous crossing of the Delaware at Christmas, and his surprise victories. And that brings me to today's book recommendation. For the past few months, I've been relying on a bunch of books that I've recommended all of which focused on the six months defending and losing New York City. Now I'm turning to a new set of books, a much larger set, that focuses on the few crucial weeks when Washington turns around this loss and saves the revolution from defeat. 
Most of these books start with the fall of Fort Washington and go through some or all of the following year. The book this week is one of those books. It's called The Day is Ours by William Dwyer. The first 50 pages or so of the book cover the retreat across New Jersey that I just discussed today. It then goes on to the famous Counter-Strike, which is coming soon in future episodes. I picked this book today because of the attention he gives to the retreat. The book covers only about three months, through January 1777. So at nearly 400 pages, not counting notes and index, it gets into some good details and fleshes out many of the main characters of the events in a way that I never seem to have time to do in my podcast. The book was first published in 1983, and the author, William Dwyer, was a teacher and journalist who passed away in 2005. As I said, it is one of several good books that cover this era, but one that I think is worth reading. My online recommendation this week is a website, Revolutionary War New Jersey, which you can find at revolutionarywarnewjersey.com, is not a site focused on historical information. Rather, it's a great resource if you live in or near New Jersey or are visiting and want to explore the many Revolutionary War sites in the state. George Washington actually spent much of the war in New Jersey, and this website lists summaries of battlefields and other places you may want to visit if you enjoy visiting historical sites from the era. So again, if interested, go to revolutionarywarnewjersey.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.